I'm going to read for those that are here uh, from Acts chapter 4, so you guys can stand like you would at Verse Bible Church. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now we'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence with us and in us. Thank you, God, as we sang, that no scheme of man could ever separate us from your hand. And we... Know, God, that we have peace because Jesus is our peace. And I pray that we would live in Christ, from Christ, God, in these um, uncertain days, times that just seem crazy. That we would have our minds and be thinking from your mind, having your thoughts, and governed, God, by your wisdom, and your heart, and your love, your peace, and assured, Lord, of your sovereignty and of your loving care. And I ask that as we look at your word that you administer to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, where we left off in Acts a couple weeks ago, um, and I was in Costa Rica with Patsy last week at one of our Torchbury schools, and John filled in for me, and I appreciate that. Um, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on their way to the temple, and they healed a man who had been lame from birth, and he was over 40 years old. And then Peter began to preach because of all the commotion that was um, created over that healing. And, um, and as we just read here in chapter 4 of Acts, in consequence, many thousands more people have come to faith. It says that 5,000 men placed their faith in Christ. We don't know if that was 5,000 at this second sermon or if it's 5,000 in total over the two sermons that Peter has now preached. Chapter 1 and now chapter 3. Chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it is a lot of people. And things are happening um, quickly, explosively, 
Um, we've never seen anything like this before since God created this world. And it is exciting, um, and it's also uncertain. Um, not unlike times we're living in now. Exciting and uncertain. Things are happening that we've never seen before, and those were the days that Peter and John and the early church was living in. And so it's a fascinating passage, and only in the Lord's sovereignty, I think, could we be looking at this today with all that's going on around the world. And there's obviously, I think, some application. So after um, preaching again and all these thousands come to faith in Christ, Peter and John, we don't know if the lame man was included, the healed lame man, but at least Peter and John were thrown into prison, arrested, thrown into prison, and then the next day brought before the Sanhedrin council on trial. This is the same council that crucified Jesus, the same Caiaphas that tore his robes and said, blasphemy, what more do we need to hear? And they rushed upon him and beat him and then handed him over to Pilate for crucifixion. Exact same people. And so all of this would have been very fresh in their minds and a lot of reason for Peter and John to feel very intimidated that the executioners of Jesus are now the ones that they stand on trial before. The Sadducees, it says, were disturbed um, in verse 2 because two things. One... Peter and John were teaching the people. And secondly, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's two things, two reasons why they're upset. Sadducees thought that the only people who had the right to teach were them. So this is, um, they're, they're feeling threatened over a loss of power. They don't want to give up this power to other people. So it's just jealousy. It's absolute, vain, self-centered jealousy. But the other reason is what they were teaching. And they were proclaiming that in Jesus, the dead are raised. And the Sadducees, as you remember, didn't believe in the resurrection. So that's why we like to say they're Sadducee, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's got to make you sad. Um, and so they're disturbed because they are jealous. They feel their power is being threatened. And they are disturbed because they disagree with the central element of this new proclamation, which was not new, just they didn't agree with it. But the proclamation being, in Jesus Christ, the dead are raised. Now, the central thing that these Sadducees believed was dead law. And now, that is being exposed. Because nothing could expose the fallacy of their faith with greater power and certainty than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So one event in history has completely destroyed everything that these men stand for. The dead are not raised. And these disciples are preaching that one, the central thing for them is totally different than the central thing for the Sadducees. Our central thing, and this is where good can come from what we're going through right now, because it, it helps us to really think about when life is no longer certain. We don't know where, how long this is going to last. We don't know whether we're going to get it. We don't know if we do get it, if we're going to survive it. We don't know if we should be around elderly people, 
We don't know if we should even go to a funeral if someone dies. We don't know how long our kids are going to be out of school. And all of a sudden, everything now is questionable. There is great uncertainty right now. But one of the things that can happen, it is happening, will happen, whether we like it or not, when everything's been turned upside down, is it gives us an opportunity to really see what is the central thing for us. What is the central thing for the body of Christ? And it ought to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That no matter else, whatever happens, everything, everything that matters centers on Jesus Christ alive from the dead. And if that is not the central thing, then all the chaos of the days that we're living in and are potentially be just coming into is going to be un undoing for us. As it was for the Sadducees. When you've got people that are threatening their power and who are questioning the central message that they live by. These new Christians are, are undoing everything and that is the end of their lives as they know it. But there is no virus and no cataclysm, cataclysmic event that would ever happen to the church of Jesus Christ that should be its undoing. Because we know Jesus lives. He has conquered death, the greatest problem we will ever have. And He lives today to sustain us and to keep us, to bless us with His very presence and His peace no matter what is happening. We could suffer greatly. The church has often suffered greatly. And we could be suffering because the world suffers. But what should never be at stake is the central thing. If the central thing for us is Jesus lives and the dead will be raised, then there's nothing we can't walk through. That's a sermon in itself. And I hope you're encouraged by that. Because these circumstances are nothing that any of us would choose. And it is causing us to, to have exposed what is most important to us. And it is a toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus lives. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, that is the central thing. So they're hauled before the whole Sanhedrin council, 70 men plus the high priest, 71 altogether. And they ask a great question, verse 7, by what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter's going, thank you for asking that question. I mean, it's like, here's your invitation, preach. And Peter's going, you couldn't ask me a better question. And so he jumps on it. Like a duck on a June bug. We <laughs> Europeans have no idea what a June bug is, so you know. <laughs> throw out something like that But he jumps on it. This is what an opportunity. By what power or in what name have you done this? Now this is as is should always be the case for a Christian when we're asked anything like this. How are you able to live the way that you're living? How are you able to do what you've just done? This is always the greatest opportunity we can have 
to deflect attention from ourselves and put the attention on Jesus to give glory to Him. So every time somebody would ever ask us a question, how can you have this peace? How can you have this joy? How can you live the way that you're living? It should be an immediate deflection from ourselves and bringing the attention to Jesus Christ, as Peter's doing. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Let me just pause there for a second. I've done some rethinking with this passage. I remember years ago, maybe it was in seminary, I don't recall when, somebody said the, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, really had no authority because they were under Rome. And so they did not, we know, have the authority to condemn someone. That's why they had to go to Pilate to get Jesus condemned. Because their authority was only um, symbolic. It was a religious authority, but it was not a civil authority. And, and, so, and, and the point that was made when I heard that is that the disobedience that we're going to see in this chapter to what these religious authorities are saying does not equate with civil disobedience. Because it was not Rome telling them, don't preach in the name of Jesus. It was a religious group of people saying, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And they had no authority when it comes to civil matters. I've rethink, have rethunk that. <laughs> it's good to thunk once in a while. <laughs> um, I've rethought that because as I read through this, number one, Peter refers to them as rulers. And so there seems to be more going on here. Plus, Jesus presented himself as king to these people, and they rejected it. And when Jesus comes the second time to the earth to establish his kingdom, we're told that Israel, the same people, will have to acknowledge him as king or he won't come again. And at that time, the last of the tribulation, Israel is not going to have any more authority than they had under Rome. In fact, they're probably going to have less authority. Because the Antichrist is going to be ruling, and he's going to take up his throne in Jerusalem. And so if Israel, if the leadership of Israel during the tribulation events was recognized as the leadership of Israel, and that Israel must deal with Jesus during the tribulation. And Jesus recognizes what they do as being the authority of the nation acting. Then I think the same thing was true during this time with Rome. That even though Rome didn't recognize their authority, God recognized their authority. And so they were still the nation of God who had rejected Jesus. And they are being held account for that. And so that speaks to me that this wasn't just disobedience to religious authority. But there was a measure here, however we want to parse it, there seems to me there, this did involve a measure of disobedience to civil authority because God is recognizing the authority of Israel even though Rome doesn't. And I think that's significant for what's coming up. So, Rulers and elders of the people, Peter says, if we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man. And that's questionable, isn't it? 
They did a good thing. But is that really why they're on trial? Because the Sadducees' power is being threatened and the central thing about what they believe is being threatened. And so it might be, this is, I think maybe this is why Peter says, if the real issue here is that a good thing was done to a sick man, well then let me talk to you about that. But if the real issue is you're jealous, and if the real issue is you're being undone by the truth that the dead are raised, then there's not a whole lot I can say to you about that. But if your problem is that a benefit was done to a lame man, then let me tell you how the benefit was done. Now when Peter later in his life writes the, the, his epistles, 1 and 2 Peter, he makes it very clear in 1 Peter um, chapter 4 that we should never suffer as an evildoer. But we will suffer, and we should expect it, that we will suffer as Christians and when we do good things. And he must have been thinking about this early experience when he wrote those words. So we need to make sure. It's one thing to suffer along with the world because of what the world's going through. There's nothing in Scripture that said that we would be exempt when the world is suffering. But there's another thing in how we respond to this, especially by the mandate that we cannot gather in groups of more than ten. We need to be careful here. And this is where we need to be praying as a people of God, not just Bernie Bible Church. Is this a time when we say, sorry, secular government, we have to gather? I don't think we're there yet, but throughout church history, the church has been forbidden from gathering. And the church gathered anyway. They gathered secretly. At one time in Rome, they gathered in the catacombs. But they gathered because it was very, very important. And then you get to, well, how do you define a gathering? Well, is this a gathering when it's by video? Those are things we need to think about and pray about. But one thing is for sure. Whatever decision we make when it comes to opposing authority, we need to be prepared to make the decision that is as much as we can be, as we can determine is right before God. And then we're prepared to suffer the consequences for it. But we should never suffer as evildoers. And in care and prudence, that is really the reason why we are at this point obeying our government. Because we don't want to be known as Christians, as the people who contributed to the spread of this virus. Because that would hurt people. And we would be slandered as evildoers. Martin Luther spoke to this very thing. I didn't bring the quote with me this morning. Somebody you know, wrote it in a blog that I read this week. Where he lived uh, as the, uh, what we would call today the ancient world, often had plagues. And, and people were often having to escape those plagues. And in the ancient world, the early church, it was not uncommon when a plague swept through a region, apparently that all the pagan religious leaders would flee because they had money and they were able to flee. And they would leave their poor adherents behind to suffer and to die. And apparently, one of the reasons the church grew so rapidly during those days is because the church, the Christians, were not fleeing. They were staying behind 
and helping their neighbors when others were fleeing. And they couldn't believe it, that their own religious leaders were fleeing to protect themselves, and the Christians were standing behind to help them. And so the church spread because they saw the love of Christ being expressed. But Martin Luther said um, that he would not, as a pastor, um, do anything that would spread the disease because he didn't want to do harm. But if his presence was necessary, he said he would go to those people. And so that was the determining criteria for him. Is my presence helpful? Or is my presence going to do harm? And right now, our government is saying gatherings of people together will do harm. And so we're in a position, I think we need to honor that and respect it temporarily. If this were to go on for months, we would certainly need to reevaluate that. But right now, um, I don't think we're there um, that we need to, um, as, a, as the body of Christ, disobey our governing leaders. Personally, I don't feel it's come to that point yet. Can't speak to what things will be like a month from now, two months from now, we don't know. Back to the text. Let it be known, verse 10, to all of you and to all the people of Israel, so he had the sense that he was preaching more than to people in that room, as I'm doing today, but certainly not to all the nation, that the name, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, got to put that in there, and whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Now that is about as clear and uncompromising as you can get. And it is an indication not of arrogance, but of the Spirit's filling. Now an arrogant man could stand and say the same thing. But this is not Peter being arrogant. We're already told this is Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. He is clear, he is bold, he is uncompromising. And we're thankful for it. And later we're going to find the church praying that they would have this kind of boldness. And God wants to give it. This is a great time to be bold. When people are panicking and being ruled by anxiety and fear, this is a great time to speak up boldly. Concerning Jesus, verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. Now I would point out, and as clear and bold as this message is, this is not a message that results in conviction. His first sermon resulted in many thousands being convicted, and then they placed their faith in Christ. This sermon is a dud in terms of conviction. But he is filled with the Spirit of God. So he preaches the first time, 3,000 come to faith. Preaches the second time, and at least another 2,000 come to faith. Now he's preaching a third time. And there's no indication that any of these people come to faith. But he is filled with the Spirit of God, and he is preaching with boldness. So what does that tell us? You can preach with the filling of God, 
with boldness that is supernatural. And it doesn't mean people are going to get saved. It's God's business. So we have to leave it with Him. Nobody gets saved, as far as we know here. Now maybe they did, because somebody tells us what happens inside this, this room. <laughs> so maybe there are one or two who actually get this and stuff, but there's no indication in the text that nobody got saved. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Only Jesus Christ. Not God. We as Christians should know that better name. The only hope and the only salvation is in Jesus Christ. It's not in men. It's not in governments. It is not in institutions. You can see there's a very subtle connection here between the healing of a man born lame and the salvation, the forgiveness of our sins and the eternal life that comes. And the reason there's this subtle connection is because the word is the same for healing as it is for salvation from your sin. And the truth is the same. And I hope I'm not going out on a limb here. We thank God for doctors and nurses. And I, I saw that in one of the countries at 8 o'clock in the evening every day, everybody stands out on their balconies, and all the, all the police officers that are down in the streets, they all clap. And they're clapping in support of the medical community because they're working around the clock to try and keep us safe. Great thing to do. But if we think the medical community is our savior, we are sadly mistaken. If we think government is our savior, we are sadly mistaken. There is only one who can save us from our sins. And I would say there is only one who can keep us healthy. Only one. We need to know this. And I have lots of friends that are in the medical field and, and spend their whole lives trying to keep people healthy. And I applaud them. And I'm thankful for them. I have no problem going to a doctor. I have no problem taking drugs. <laughs> I thank God for drugs. <laughs> but I know this. Just as salvation comes only in Jesus Christ, and only in His name. Only God can keep us healthy. We need to know that. It doesn't mean you don't go to the doctor. It doesn't mean you don't wash your hands. But we need to know. It's not what we eat that keeps us healthy. It's not who we distance ourselves from that keeps us healthy. God keeps us healthy. God is the one who's given us life. And God is the one who is sustaining this life. It is Jesus Christ who holds this whole world together. And it's Jesus Christ who holds me and you together. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, every aspect of our being. And we need to make sure we're not trusting what we do and fearing because we can't do what we think we need to do. Can't buy the foods that we want to have. Afraid that the person that we were with might have exposed us. We are not to be ruled by fear as though we are in control. We are not in control. And government is not in control. Our health is sustained by God. 
there is no one else. It is absolute and it is exclusive. And one of the things that happens in times like this is we have everything laid bare and we get to see where is our trust. There is no one else other than Jesus. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, shame on them, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Wrong. Okay, you good torchbearer students should read that verse and know these guys were absolutely wrong. They were not confident because they had been with Jesus. After three years with Jesus, on the night that he was arrested, they all ran for their lives. And then they were stayed behind closed, locked doors, and Jesus had to walk through the doors, through the walls, to get to them. That's not because they were confident. It's because they were scared spitless, as my mother used to like to say. So why are these men confident? It's not because they've been with him but it's because he is now in them. What has, has absolutely transformed these men and women from being terrified and panicked and paralyzed by their fear, what has transformed them to being bold, confident people is the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ and this filling of the Holy Spirit. Bible school is not going to keep you, it's not going to have you walk in confidence, as good as Bible school is, as committed as I am to it. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the only source of true peace, confidence, and boldness. And so they ordered them to... to Go outside while they conferred, and they said, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So again, this is why I said there is some indication that maybe somebody in this room got saved. Because Peter and John are just being kicked out. So how do they know the conversations that are taking place now in this private council? So maybe one of these council members, one, maybe one of the 70, came to faith in Christ, and then later is telling Luke, what happened um, during that private session. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them that no, to, to speak no more to any man in this name. And so then they summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter doesn't question their jurisdiction. He doesn't question their authority, their right to command this as a matter of principle. What he questions is, do they have, have the right to command them to do something God is not, is not wanting them to do? But Jesus and, and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Obviously it speaks for itself. That no matter how much authority God has given to people, nobody has the authority to command someone else to do what is wrong. And he says, you be the judge. In other words, you know the answer to this. We cannot do what is wrong in order to please you. We must obey God. 
And so verse 20 is very strong. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And that cannot speaks of, of two things. One is inability. He doesn't say we will not. Stick it in your eye. He says we cannot. And so they felt compelled and constrained to speak verbally, clearly, concerning Jesus Christ. I'm impressed by that. And I, I, I truly believe that God wants to put that burning in each of us. That when there is opportunity to speak, we can't be silenced. That doesn't mean that we should speak all the time. But when God gives the opportunity, as God gave to these men, I don't want to be a man who can be silenced. And I know God doesn't want His people to be a quiet people when it's time to speak up, to speak boldly. That we'd be a people who would say, you know, I would like to not speak because it's only going to get me in trouble. But I can't not speak. I have to speak because God's Spirit compels me. There is a burning that's in me just as there were in the Old Testament prophets, just as there was in the Old Testament prophets. Secondly, not only is he speaking of inability, but he's speaking of obedience to God. We must obey God. And that will never change. When it comes, when there's a clear distinction between our conflict between obedience to God and obedience to man, we must, we must obey God. The church ought to be the boldest, most confident people on the planet. Not arrogant, humble, humble. But we stand strong. Because God is our strength. And there is no, no stronger person in this universe than God. And we obey God in the strength of God. Whatever the consequences would be. And sometimes the consequences are severe. Make no mistake about it. Daniel's three friends said, O king, we will not bow down. Humble, but resolute. We have one God. And we must obey Him. We will worship only God. I pray we be the same. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. They threatened them further, which was just pure intimidation, and sent them out. And they left glorifying God for all that had happened. And then verse 23, they went to their own. I'll just finish up with this thought. I'll never forget, many years ago, Major Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, um, was preaching and he made reference to that verse. They went to their own. And he said, at that time, every year, there would be 180 students that would show up from around the world to Cape Henry Hall in the north of England. And those 180 students would typically come from 20 or more countries, speaking different languages, never seen each other. And he says, that first evening, they'd all be in the same room, and they would be drinking tea and just socializing. And Major Thomas said, you could stand to the side and watch them. And within minutes... Those 180 people who have never met each other before have all separated and found their home. 
So different languages, different cultures, completely different backgrounds, and yet they would find their own. And he just meant, even within the body of Christ, we, if we're not functioning in Christ, we will look for fleshly things to orient ourselves to. Things that we will find common in other people that are true in us. It could be music. It could be the way we dress. It's just so many ways, but it's just it's uncanny how people find their own. His hill is now being scattered to the four winds. I absolutely hate it. But my prayer is that you go to your own and that your own would be God's people. I, there's worse than the scattering would be getting news that some of our students walked away from Jesus because Jesus was never one of their own. And they have associated with other people where Jesus is not the common denominator. That is the greatest tragedy. But as you leave, that you leave in Christ, accepting this as the will of God, and that you, by His Spirit, gravitate to those who are of the same heart and the same mind, being that of Jesus. And that the common denominator be Jesus is risen from the dead. And you will do well. We're out of time. We don't have a bell here on Sundays, I don't think, in comfort that goes off at noon. But I see that we're just right at noon by the clock on the back of the wall. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, love the students here at East Hill more than I can ever express. And um, commend you to the grace of God, knowing that He will care for you. Pray. God, this is um, not what any of us would choose. It is hard. I thank you, God, that our trust is not misplaced in you. We don't understand, but we know that you are in control. And that there's nothing, God, that you can't work for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. So I do commend these precious students to you. Pray, God, for your richest blessing on them. They would walk in peace and confidence and boldness. They would know that you've gone before them and that their hearts, God, can be kept because you keep them. We pray for the church. Lord, at this time, not just Burning Bible Church, but the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide, that we be living, God, in the confidence of Jesus Christ, being filled with the Spirit of God, walking in purity, in light, in holiness, for your name's sake, God. And with every opportunity that you give us to speak, that we would speak clearly and uncompromisingly in the name, the strong name of Jesus Christ. We pray that our words and our actions both will bear witness to Him who lives. And I pray, God, that we would have Your mind on if that time comes when we must obey You rather than our governing authorities concerning this virus 
in how the government is handled. I pray, God, that we would not just operate by conviction of what we think is right, but that we would truly hear you, Lord Jesus, and respond to your spirit in faith and obedience. And we trust you, God, to give us the, the grace to accept, well, whatever the consequences would be of putting you first and of obeying you rather than man. In Jesus' name, amen.